please, if you will, turn in your Bibles to our, the passage that is our scripture reading, Psalm 119, verses 89 to 96. Psalm 119, verses 89 to 96. Again, that's our scripture reading. And then our sermon passage this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 to 25. So that'll, that'll take us through the end of chapter 28. You remember that last week's passage ended, sermon passage ended at verse 2 of chapter 28. So again, our scripture reading, Psalm 119, verses 89 to 96. Our sermon passage, 1 Samuel 28, verses 3 to 5. And brothers and sisters, I remind you as God's word is about to be read that it is just that. This is not some hokey work of fiction. It's not some kind of compilation of the words of humanity. Though certainly human authors were involved in the process of this book being written. This is a book that was written over a period of 1,600 to 2,000 years, it had well over 45 different human authors, and yet it's a book that is marked not by inconsistencies and contradictions, it is marked by its amazing consistency and harmony, and that is because it has as its one true and ultimate author, the Lord, God himself. This is the breathed out word of God, and so for that reason, it is your duty to give your fullest attention to God's word as it is now to be read. Psalm 119, verses 89 to 96. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. The the wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. Now turning, if you will, to... 1 Samuel chapter 28, beginning at verse 3 and reading through the end of the chapter, verse 25. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah in his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and encamped at Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servants said to him, Behold, there is a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, divine for me a spirit and bring up for me, divine for me by a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? 
But Saul swore to her by the Lord, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, whom shall I bring up for you? He said, bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, do not be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, what is his appearance? And she said, an old man is coming up and he is wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress for the Philistines are warring against me and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him. For he had eaten nothing all day and night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I have taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you have said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, and she quickly killed it. And she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it. And she put it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. Then they rose and went away that night. This ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and errant word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for all that it teaches us, Lord. We are grateful, as we've already spoken about, of its wonderful unity and harmony and the excellence of all of its parts. We're thankful especially, dear Lord, because your word tells us how we may be saved. We thank you, Lord, that you have caused us to delight in your word. We pray, Lord, that we would take your word to heart, that we would trust it, And that by your word we would live. Lord, please bless us now as your word is about to be preached. Bless those who hear. Bless the one who preaches. We pray that you would guide us to a right understanding of your word. And that you would grow us in our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now as your word is preached. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll ask you a few rhetorical questions here at the beginning of the sermon. You don't need to chime back in with answers unless you just want to, but I probably won't answer them if you do or respond to them if you do. But how many of you have ever been desperate to know what the Lord has in store for you, say tomorrow or next month or perhaps next year? How many of you have been desperate to know the decision 
how the decision that you make today will affect you tomorrow. To know how long the present crisis that you find yourself in is going to go on. How long must you endure these things? How many of you have cried out to the Lord asking him to tell you what you ought to do in a given situation? I think every one of us has felt that way to a certain degree. And people can at times resort to extreme measures to find out. Now, in Shakespeare's famous play, Macbeth, the play from which the title of the sermon was taken today, the title character is Desperate. And you may remember this if you read it back in high school, or perhaps you've read it recently. I had to dust off my old copy and refresh my memory on it just uh, within the last few days to remind myself of it. But at the very beginning of the play, these three witches, the weird sisters, they show up out of the blue unexpectedly right at the very beginning and they approach Macbeth and they tell him, he who is not even in the line to become the king of Scotland, that he will be the king of Scotland. And, and Macbeth takes matters into his own hands. He, he is going to be the agent that causes the prophecy to be fulfilled. And so what does he do? He kills the current king of Scotland and his two sons, thereby erasing the line of that current king. And he ascends to the throne of Scotland. Well, as you probably know, Macbeth becomes increasingly paranoid. He becomes increasingly unstable. He becomes increasingly nervous about what's going on. And so about midway through the play, he decides to try to find these weird sisters. He goes in search of them, and he does find them. And he seeks reassurance from them that he would remain the king of Scotland. And they say something along the lines of that uh, no one born of woman or one, no one born of, of, of mankind will uh, unseat you from the throne of Scotland. Now moving from a fictional play to true history, something that actually happened, Saul, we see, is going into a full paranoid breakdown when he found out this, that there's this huge Philistine army that had arrayed itself at uh, Shunem, which was deep within the territory of the northern tribes of Israel. And so you know that Judah is, Judah is the south, uh, Judah ends up being the good guys of the Old Testament, right? At least for a time. Israel, they're the northerners. Uh, but at this time, there's no distinction between the northern and the southern tribes of, Is uh, of Israel. It's a united country at that point under Saul. And these Philistines, this massive army, we're not told exactly how big at this point, but they've arrayed themselves up to the north. And Saul, as verse 5 of our passage puts it, was very afraid. His heart trembled greatly. But this is nothing new from, for Saul. Since chapter 15, at least, Saul has known that the Lord was going to tear the kingdom from him. Just as easily as David had cut off a corner of his robe. And yet Saul has lived in denial ever since. He's tried to, to put that thing behind him, not think about it. And it's made him increasingly mad. Now, in chapter 15, Samuel told Saul in verse 26, after Saul had apologized to Samuel and Samuel rebuked him, when Samuel told him that the kingdom was going to be torn from him because Saul failed to do what he was supposed to do in eradicating, wiping out the Amalekites from the face of the earth, Samuel told him that he feared the people and obeyed their voice rather than the voice of the Lord. And he said, you have rejected the word of the Lord and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. So Saul knew, whether he consciously thought about it, that his kingship over Israel was on borrowed time. But he also should have known 
That when he inquired of the Lord, as verse 6 says, that the Lord was not going to answer him because he, since chapter 15, and really even before the events of chapter 15, had continuously rejected the word of the Lord. As we work our way through the sermon today, I ask you to, to consider this thought. Rejecting the word of the Lord brings death. But delighting in his word brings everlasting life. I'll say that one more time. Rejecting the word of the Lord brings death. But delighting in his word brings everlasting life. Well, the sermon is divided into three sections, three points, almost as always. The first point, fear and loathing in Gilboa. The second, desperately seeking Samuel. And the third, the return of the king's prophet. Let me say that again. Fear and loathing in Gilboa, that's the first point. The second, desperately seeking Samuel. And the third, the return of the king's prophet. So let's consider first this first point, fear and loathing in Gilboa. Verse 3 of our passage sets the stage for what follows. Verse 3 tells us something that we do know already and something that we don't know already. We know that Samuel has died already. Chapter 25, verse 1 told us that. But we don't know until verse 3 tells us that Saul had put all of the mediums and the necromancers out of the land. He had put them out of business. And so this verse sets the, th- is the stage for everything that follows. But what follows takes place chronologically after the events of chapter 29. Now, it might take you a second to get your head around that. It did for me. As Dale Davis puts it in his commentary on 1 Samuel, the troop positions at the beginning of chapters 28 and 29 reveal this inversion of the chronology. What does that even mean? Well, in chapter 29, Achish and his fellow Philistines had gathered at Aphek. You remember that Achish's base was in Gath, pretty far to the south, southwest of Jerusalem, 25, 30 miles, give or take, southwest of Jerusalem, somewhat closer to the coast but far to the south, outside of the lands of the tribes of Israel and Judah. So they move from Gath um, up to Aphek, which was about 25 miles north of Gath. And then in chapter 28, verse 4, that's chapter 29, that's where, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 29, Achish and his fellow Philistines, uh, they're there at Aphek. Chapter 28, verse 4, we read that the Philistines had encamped at Shunem, which as was already mentioned, was only about 17 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee, far to the northwest of Aphek. And Saul, when he goes to Endor to consult with this medium, Endor is just a few miles to the southwest of the Sea of Galilee. So naturally, the, the, the movement of troops would require that they move from Gath to Aphek up to, to, to Gilboa or Shunem for the, the Philistines. And then Saul's troops, as we see in chapter 28, they gather at Gilboa. This place where they were located, this place that the Philistines had gathered, it was strategically a very important place for them to want to draw Israel out in battle. It's uh, right on the edge of a great plain there to the north of Jerusalem. And that was advantageous for the Philistines because the Philistines had chariots. And chariots don't do so well in mountainous, rocky, hilly places, but they do exceedingly well in valleys or on plains where places are are more flat. And that's exactly what they have there. Now, some of you might follow this kind of thing. You may remember, you might be aware of 
that the United States military, the Army, the Marines, they have as their main battle tank the M1 Abrams tank. And it's an amazing piece of technology. I think it was introduced sometime in the 1980s. This tank, it was a game changer in, in terms of traditional uh, battlefield uh, tactics. And part of the reason for that was because it could travel 55, 60, 65 miles per hour on a relatively smooth surface, say the deserts of, of Kuwait, the deserts of Iraq, and it could fire, even if it was going up and down, its turret would maintain its, its level and target on uh, its, being aimed at its target. But what we found in the second Iraq war in, in 2003 when we invaded Iraq is that the, the main battle tank is terrible in urban warfare. The M1 Abrams can't maneuver around on city streets, and especially city streets of ancient cities that are not, never contemplated something as large. And so the M1 Abrams was virtually worthless in many of the towns in which we fought battles in Iraq. But the Philistines had these chariots. God had pro uh, prohibited his people, from, his kings, from having chariots. He wanted them to rely on the Lord. And so the Philistines, they go out to a place where they would have the greatest advantage against their enemies, the Israelites. Now you'll remember that last week we were left with a cliffhanger. David was told by King Achish that the Philistines were gathering their forces for war against Israel and that David and his men would fight for them with David as his bodyguard for life. And David says something along the lines of, well, you'll see what your servant can do. David doesn't know what he's going to do. How is he going to get, get out of this? He has been deceiving Achish. He's been saying that he's been raiding uh, tribes uh, within Judah, his, his fellow countrymen. But in fact, he's been going against other Philistine tribes, other Philistine peoples, the Amalekites, uh, the Gerzites. What's he going to do now? Well, he's in this dilemma. And again, we don't find out what happens until chapter 29 when we get the results of David's test. Chapter 28 keeps us in suspense. Although in real time, David found out relatively quickly how God would deliver him from the horns of his dilemma. So David's in a dilemma, but Saul too is in a dilemma. The Philistines, including Achish, have gathered for war in this territory of the northern tribes, and Saul has no one to give him guidance. He is alone at the top. Samuel is dead, as we learned back in chapter 25, verse 1, and repeated again in 28.3. Saul is estranged from his son, and apparently he has no trusted military advisors. But what he's really seeking is some word from the Lord, some prophecy, some foretelling of the future. He needs to know how in the world things are going to go when the battle begins the next day. We learn another piece of, of new information. Saul had put all of the mediums and the necromancers out of business. We're not told when Saul did this, but it's most likely that it was after Samuel confronted him about his sin back in chapter 15. Samuel told him in 1523 in this oracle from the Lord, for rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also rejected you from being king. Now, it might have been in an effort to regain God's favor that Saul evicted the practitioners of magic. We don't really know. But what we do know is that he did it. He supposedly kicked them out. But now... Many chapters later, many years later, Saul needs help. 
He needs the divine word. He was desperate. He was afraid. And in verse 6 we read, And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Saul exhausted all of the legal means at his disposal for divining the will of the Lord. Saul knew that God sometimes would use dreams to reveal his plans to his people. Saul lived in a day where the, the canon of God's word was not complete. And so God augmented that limited revealed portion of his word with dreams, with these oracular devices, these Urim and Thummim, which were something like casting lots or a rolling of the dice, something along those lines. But of course, most importantly and most, most steadily with prophets. And Saul had none of these. He was desperate after the death of Samuel. But Samuel, that tried and trusted mouthpiece of the Lord, is the one whom he wanted to consult. And that brings us to the second point of the sermon, desperately seeking Samuel. Despite Saul's banishment of mediums and necromancers, he told his servants in verse 7 to seek out for him a woman who was a medium so that he could go and inquire of her. And his servant's quick answer to him shows just how effective Saul had been in throwing them out. In other words, not at all. They immediately come back. They don't even go anywhere. They just say, well, we know a medium at Endor. It's well within the, the lands that Israel holds. Now, to get to Endor, Saul would have to skirt around the Philistine army that's encamped at Shunem. And so he and two men went by night, as verse 8 tells us. And it also tells us there that Saul disguised himself, perhaps, probably at least, in part, so that he wouldn't be recognized by the Philistines. Saul would have been someone who could be recognized. Remember, the description of him earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 11 or so says that he was very tall. He stood a head and shoulders above everyone else. And so he disguised himself so they wouldn't recognize him. But also, he didn't want the medium to know that the person who had banned her kind was there in front of her, consulting her. And so when they got to the woman, Saul told her, Divine for me by a spirit, and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman's immediately suspicious, and in verse 9 she reminds Saul that Saul had cut off mediums and necromancers from the land. Now there's a great deal of irony here. She was telling, unwittingly, the very person who had done it, what he had done. She didn't know that the person she was telling was the one who had done it. But Saul's answer to the woman in verse 10 is no less ironic. But Saul swore to her by the Lord. He said there in verse 10, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Think about this. Saul, the king of Israel, by the Lord's anointing, who had, in keeping with the Lord's word, banished mediums from the land, was swearing by the name of the Lord that no harm would come to the medium that he was trying to consult. Now, where do we get this that Saul was being consistent with the word of the Lord and his banishment of mediums and necromancers. Well, along with other passages, there's several passages that deal with this, but Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 10 to 12, specifically prohibits mediums and necromancers, along with other practitioners of witchcraft. We read there, There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his sons or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. 
Now, this passage is in the Torah. It's in the part of the scripture that Israel certainly had in her possession in Saul's day. Again, the canon was not complete, but they had that much of it. And Saul obviously knew this portion of the Torah because he'd taken the right step in abolishing practitioners of witchcraft from Israel. And keep in mind that nowhere does it say that these people who practice this thing aren't capable of producing some form of, of true revelation or other. What the Lord is prohibiting is seeking his will from anything other than his appointed means. And in that case, for Saul, it was through dreams, through the Urim, the Thummim, and by the prophets. And certainly the Torah would have been considered to be the product of the prophet Moses, but also of those prophets who lived among his day. Saul, what we see here, is so desperate to hear something from God that he will violate God's commands and even use God's name as a way to get what he wants. And so after Saul tells this woman that nothing's going to happen to her, he swears by the name of Yahweh. Verse 11, the woman asks Saul who he would like for her to bring up, and Saul told her Samuel. Now, at this point, if this were a work of fiction, if it were a movie, a, a novel, most likely there would be a recitation of the words, of the incantation that the medium used to summon Samuel, some kind of record of it. There's not anything here. There, there's no, the, the medium utters no words before Samuel appears. And I think that it may be because the woman didn't actually say anything. It's almost as if she didn't have a chance. As soon as Saul said, bring up Samuel, there Samuel was. It was almost at his word, not to say that he uttered an incantation himself. Now that might be an explanation for why the medium cried out with a loud voice, that she was surprised that Samuel appeared. It may be something like Professor Trelawney who actually got it right once when she gave an, a prophecy, uttered an oracle, and was sort of, everybody was surprised that she was correct. It may have been something like that. It could be, however, her cry could be explained, her, her scream uh, might be explained by her immediate realization that the only person who would be desperate enough to want to recall Samuel, this famous and beloved prophet from the dead, it could only be Saul. The very person who had banned the practice, as verse 12 indicates. The medium recognizes, here's the guy who said he would kill me in his edict if I didn't leave the land. And here he is in front of me asking me to do the very thing that he's banned. Now, either way you view this, either she cried out because she was surprised that something actually worked for a change, or she cried out because she recognized that Saul uh, was the king or both. Setting that aside, I do believe that the only way we can understand what's going on is to admit that it really is Samuel, or some apparition of him, perhaps not in bodily form, who is there before them. It's clear that it's not a hallucination on Saul's part. The woman sees Samuel too. But I don't think that Samuel was physically present. Some people believe that he was, that he was physically resurrected in the same way that Lazarus was resurrected by Jesus or that Jesus himself was resurrected from the dead. The thing that, that seems to, to speak against that is the fact that, that Samuel was buried many, many miles to the south at Ramah. 
Lazarus, when he was resurrected, his body was right there with Jesus. Jesus, when he was resurrected, his body was there in Jerusalem. Wasn't wasn't somehow transported from miles away up to a different location. Whether or not Samuel was physically present, we can be assured that his appearance before Saul was the Lord's doing. It wasn't so much by the power of this necromancer that, that Samuel appeared. As Dale Davis says, for his own reasons, God must have permitted Samuel to come up in order to speak his word of truth and doom to Saul. Yahweh's word was spoken, even if it came via an illegitimate method. Now, in response to the woman's realization that he was King Saul, Saul told her in verse 13 not to be afraid. He reassured her, and then he asked her what she saw, perhaps to make sure that he wasn't the only one who was seeing Samuel, that it wasn't just a figment of his imagination. And she tells him that she sees a God coming up out of the earth. Now, don't let that word throw you. The word there in Hebrew is Elohim. But the only way that the woman knows how to describe what she is seeing is to to describe it as a God, or to put it another way, a divine form. And probably what she means there is that it's a spiritual being that is coming up from the ground rather than a physical, uh, rather than a physical being. It's an apparition. And this all asks for more details in verse 14. And she said that an old man was coming up who was wrapped in a robe. And it's at this point that Saul knew that she was seeing the same person he was seeing, that the figure before him was Samuel. Because Samuel always had a robe. And Saul had torn that robe from around Samuel. And he bowed at this point with his face to the ground and paid homage. Now the only other place up to this point where Saul has bowed to the ground in 1 Samuel is back in chapter 15. Another, Another reference to that chapter. After Samuel told Saul that the Lord had rejected him for not destroying the Amalekites. And there when Saul was begging Samuel for forgiveness, he bows on the ground to the Lord. And it's in that very incident, Saul's bowing to the Lord before Samuel, that Saul tears Samuel's robe as Samuel turned to go away. And Samuel told Saul that God would tear the kingdom from his hands just as Saul had torn the robe off of Samuel. Saul's rejection of the word of Yahweh is now complete. Saul is engaging in practices that God explicitly forbade. And doing so to receive a word from the Lord. And that brings us to the third and the final point of the sermon, the return of the king's prophet. Samuel, we see he's returned to Saul, albeit briefly, and almost everything he tells Saul, Saul already knew. But first, Samuel expresses his unhappiness at being conjured up. In verse 15, he says, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul has entered his eternal rest. Saul is with the Lord. He's there. But now, against his wishes, against what he prefers, he's been disturbed. He's been brought back up. Saul answers Samuel, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I should do. Saul Saul is at a loss. He doesn't know what he should do. He doesn't see any way that he can beat the Philistines. Saul's rejection of God's word and God's rejection of Saul has reached its fullest extent. Saul has nothing to guide him. He is alone. He is rejected. He is a failure of a king and of a person. 
He was part of God's covenant people. And it's becoming increasingly evident that he doesn't believe. And Samuel's response to Saul contains no comforting words. Samuel first asks Saul in verse 16 why he has asked him since the Lord has turned from him to become his enemy. And then he tells Saul that the Lord has done to him just as he told him through Samuel. Saying that he would tear the kingdom out of Saul's hand and give it to his neighbor David. All of this is what Saul knows. Why should Saul be surprised at what's happening? What, what, what God prophesied through Samuel is coming to pass. And all of this, Samuel says in verse 18, is because Saul did not obey the voice of the Lord. He did not carry out his judgment upon Amalek. And then in verse 19, he reveals to Saul something that he had not revealed before. He tells him something new, but it's not something that Saul wants to know. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. And there's no mention of Samuel disappearing, but after his words, these words in verse 19, Samuel goes away. And in verse 20, Saul, Saul falls even further onto the ground. He collapses, it seems, out of fear at Samuel's words, but also from hunger because he hadn't eaten all day and all night. Whatever it was that Saul had been hoping to learn, it wasn't that he would suffer utter defeat and that the very next day he and his sons would join Samuel in the grave. And that's what I think Samuel meant there when he said, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. He wasn't telling Saul that tomorrow he would join Samuel in paradise the way that Jesus told the thief on the cross next to him. Samuel here is not speaking of paradise or judgment, but simply of the fact that Saul tomorrow is going to die. He's going to go to the grave. In the description of Saul's death in 1 Chronicles 10, verses 13 and 14, it says that Saul died for his breach of faith. It says there that he broke faith with God by not keeping the command of God. But it also adds something there in 1 Chronicles 10. It says that he, he was put to death, that he died because he consulted a medium. That he sought her guidance. He didn't seek guidance from the Lord. And therefore, the Lord put him to death. Now, it is true, and you can see it. You can see it around yourself. You may have on occasion seen it in yourself. People get desperate when there's a famine of the word of God. But what people don't always realize when they're in the midst of that kind of famine is that so often the famine is the result of their rejection of God's word. A famine of God's word, which is prophesied in the Old Testament. There will be a famine of God's word from among you. And we often think of that as sort of as the withdrawal of all of the Bibles from the face of the earth, and that's not necessarily the case. It's the rejection of God's word by the people who are on the face of the earth that often brings about the famine of God's word. We denigrate God's word. We deny the sufficiency of God's word for us. And then we become desperate to discern his will. We resort to seeing the slightest coincidence as a sign from the Lord. As, as, a, as an example, when I was in college, I had a crush on this. I think I was probably a freshman. She was a senior. And 
I think she knew who I was, but that was about it. And one day, I'm driving into, onto campus. There's one road that leads to the campus of my college. One road that leads out, that's it. I'm driving in, she happens to be driving out, and I just happened at the same time to be thinking of her, and I took that as a sign from the Lord. Well, the Lord must mean for us to end up together, and guess what? She never gave me the time of day. Never did. It wasn't the Lord's will. But I took that coincidence. I didn't think about the fact that the campus at that point, the student body, was about 350 people. That the town in which it was situated was very small. I didn't think about the fact that there was one road leading in and leading out and that the chances were very high, statistically speaking, that we would pass each other on the roads driving one way and the other the other. I didn't think about all of those things. I took it as a sign from the Lord. And I was wrong. But people seek signs. They consult horoscopes. They come up with some of the craziest ideas that, that the Lord, it must be the Lord's will for this thing or that thing to happen. Sometimes it's just gas, I think, that causes us to think that the Lord is telling us to do one thing or another. How do we know how to discern the will of the Lord for us? Brothers and sisters, he has given us all that we need in his word. It is sufficient This is the legal way that you find out what God's will is for you. The Old Testament time of an incomplete canon is over. It is complete. It is sufficient. It's all that we need. People can do great harm to themselves when they seek God's will outside of his word. There are people who send in millions of dollars to so-called false prophets because they want to get a word from the Lord or some kind of blessing from the Lord. And it's all a sham. But these people are so desperate and they think that that man on the television is going to give them just what they need. And all it does is enrich the person so that he can buy his Gulfstream 5 private jet. Returning to our passage, God's rejection of Saul brought him to such deep desperation that he was willing to disobey the revealed will of God in order to get some kind of new revelation. And Saul could not claim ignorance of God's will with regard to mediums and necromancers because he himself had enacted a law that carried out God's will regarding mediums and necromancers. He got a new revelation, however. It was not the revelation that he wanted. And after what Samuel told him, Saul was devastated. But he was also famished, and the woman could see this. She also knew that Saul could have her killed because of her profession. She still didn't know whether to trust this man or not. Clearly, he's comfortable with lying in whatever way he sees fit. So she tells Saul in verse 22 that because she obeyed him, he must now obey her. And she told him that she was going to give him some food so that he would have strength when he went on his way. And probably she's thinking, I want him out sooner rather than later. Please get away from here. I don't want you in my house any longer. Saul initially refused her offer, but his servants and the woman urged him and they prevailed upon him. And so he rose up and she made a feast for him and his servants, his servants and he, they all ate together. She had a fattened calf. She slaughtered the calf, she roasted some of the meat, and she gave it to these men. And after eating, they departed, and they went back to their camp. But think about this. This is Saul's last supper. 
This is the last meal that he is going to enjoy while he is alive on the face of the earth. He is going to his death tomorrow. What Samuel prophesied to him in that apparition, it comes true. We'll find that out in chapters 29 through the end of the book of 1 Samuel. And this Last Supper of Saul, it brings to mind the Last Supper of Jesus Christ. It's inescapable. I think it's there for a reason. It it points forward to Christ's last supper. But as we consider parallels between those two suppers, we see that Saul is not in the position that foreshadows Christ. Saul points forward to Judas. And even their deaths are tragically similar. Saul's life was a living example of the bad news that stands in opposition to the good news, which is shown in the life of David. Now, I admit freely that I have held off up to this point in making any final pronouncements on Saul's eternal state. And quite honestly, I still don't know. I have a pretty good idea at this point, based on what we have seen, what has been revealed to us in God's word. We may be surprised and see Saul when we go to be with the Lord. But God's word doesn't give any evidence that Saul is a believer. I think we have to admit he had some common operations to the Spirit. He was anointed as the king, and because of that, he was able to do things that were surprising. But Jesus, when he's talking about at the end of the age, there were some who will come before him and say, Lord, Lord, I did all of these things in your name. And Jesus tells them, he says, I'm going to tell those people, depart from me, you evil and wicked servant. I do not know you. And I think think, I can't say with absolute certainty, I'm reluctant to do so, but I think that Saul is in that category. But what we do see here is this contrast between Saul and David. That's why I think, again, the author has set, he's interrupted the narrative about David. He's inverted the chronology. He's put this in here. He's shown us the dilemma that Saul is in and how Saul failed in the face of that dilemma. He shows us the rejection of God's word in Saul. And then he's going to show us the embrace of God's word by David. And it, this contrast between Saul and David is so stark that it certainly paints a picture of the bad news that is in contrast with the good news. I have to admit that David was no less of a sinner than Saul. He committed sins that were just as heinous. We'll see that when we work our way through 2 Samuel sometime over the next few months, the next year or two. Not only was Saul complicit in murder, Saul was a rapist. David was a rapist. He He was complicit in murder. He was also complicit in raping Bathsheba. He did evil and heinous things. But the key difference was that God had given to David the ability to repent of his sins. And when confronted with his sins by the prophet of the Lord. What did David do? He repented. He fell on his face in sorrow. He confessed his sins. Saul, even after he was told that he was going to die the next day, and I think we can see this as as God giving Saul a final opportunity not to reject his word, but to embrace it. What does Saul do? He doesn't repent. It is a change. 
Again, after so many times before, Saul rejects the word of the Lord and he lost everything. But David delighted in God's word. Even those words from the Lord that accused him of sin. And he found everlasting life. David believed God's word, but Saul did not. And this is still true today. Those who reject the word of God will ultimately meet their destruction. Those who have been of the household of faith, those who have been a part of the covenant community of God, as Saul was, they they have opportunity after opportunity after opportunity not to reject God's word. And I think you and I, we can admit that there are times in our lives where we have, for a season perhaps, rejected the word of the Lord. We have have gone off of the path. We have wandered. We've strayed. We haven't believed the way that we... Some of you may perhaps at this point in your life be there right now. You might be in the midst of your straying. But the one who is the true believer in Jesus Christ, that one will always, at some point, be drawn back by the word of the Lord. You... He or she, you'll hear it. You'll hear him. You won't always reject the word of the Lord until the last breath, until your dying day. But those who do, those who do reject the word of the Lord, they're getting, in reality, what they want. They don't want God telling them what to do, just like Saul didn't want God telling him what to do. Saul was guilty of rebelling. That's what rejection of God's word is. But those who receive God's word in faith, those who trust in the one, Jesus Christ, about whom it is written, God's word, they, you, receive everlasting life. And brothers, that is the good news. Sisters, that is the good news that stands in opposition to this very bad news that we've seen with regards to Saul. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you that you have given us your word. We're thankful that your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We're thankful that you have given us the ability by your spirit to embrace your word in faith, to trust it, to believe it, To understand that it is true. That it is the truth. But we pray that you would correct us when we stray. That in those instances, those, those instances where we have that initial rejection of your word. Where we say to ourselves, did God really say that this thing is a sin? This thing that I really want to do. We pray that you would correct us. That you would prevent us from ultimately rejecting your word. We pray that you would gently humble us. And remind us of our ultimate need. Our need for your word. And we pray, dear Lord, that we would feast upon your word each and every day in faith. That we would not allow ourselves to enter into a famine of your word by rejecting it. Please, O Lord, be with us. Bless us and keep us, we ask. And help us to drink deeply 
from the well that is your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.